Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Today, me and Lewis are going to be talking about the five books we prepared today. Um, I have five, Lewis has five, we're going to get right into it. Lewis, why don't you start off with your first book? Okay, so the first book I'm going to talk about is Deep Work by Cal Newport. Uh, People that know me know I talk about that book a lot. It's been very influential for me in a lot of ways. I read it in the spring of my freshman year of college. Uh, It was recommended to me by the Recommended Books for College Students on Thomas Frank's website, College Info Geek. Uh, Heard of Cal Newport, I think, from a friend in high school, but I I still might be making that up. Uh, Never really confirmed it with that guy. Anyway, the book is about focus. It's about the importance of cultivating high-quality attention and being able to concentrate deeply and for long, sustained periods of time on one specific task. And it goes into the importance of that from an interpersonal, not interpersonal, from a personal perspective in terms of he's not making necessarily any claims about whether or not this is good for society or not. I mean, he kind of does, but that's not the point of the book. The point is, if you get good at concentrating for a long amount of time in intense ways, you'll see massive individual advantages for a couple of reasons, right? The first is that there are three skills that are important for the modern economy. Uh, One of them is the ability to master hard things quickly. And the best way to be able to do that is to work deeply. You have to be able to have long, uninterrupted periods of focus on whatever you're studying to be able to learn it quickly, especially if it's something that's difficult. The other so, two, yeah, go ahead, Kyle. So that's, what are that's some, a little bit about some, the book. What are some ways? I, I actually read the book as well. Um, you read my copy. I did do that. What, what are some ways very that distracting he, from what you told me? Um, well, it's because you don't draw straight lines. All okay. your lines are really like messed up, so it, it takes away from the reading experience. I've got highlighters now. We've advanced. Thank God. But um, what ways in which does he say you can like? Um, get better at that being uh, focused for long uninterrupted periods of time? That's a good question, Kyle. He goes into a couple of specific practices he recommends for doing it. Uh, It's not something that you just practice or get better at deep work by trying to do more deep work. You actually have to make changes to your everyday life in order to improve the skill. And one of the most important ways to do that is to limit the amount of distracting behavior you participate in or at least to take control of it. His big recommendation is deleting social media or moderating it in a substantial way. That That's something that you followed for a while, right? A long what do you time. mean, right? <laughs> you know the answer. Can you... I, do, I do know the answer. But... However, recently you, you're taking a different, uh, a different path, and I think that's interesting and something that you should talk about. Okay, so chapter three of the book is called, or chapter four of the book is called Quit Social Media. It's a very persuasive argument against social media. Cal Newport, extremely successful author, professor, uh, has a very large following on the internet, never had social media. Uh, His reason for never creating Facebook when he was in college is that he had his own internet company in college and he was jealous and he was like, no, I'm not starting this Facebook guy, that the smart guy ain't crap. I'm at Dartmouth, he's at Harvard, I'm better than him, whatever. And so he didn't want to start it, kind of out of a personal jealousy type thing. And then he saw the way it was affecting the people who had it and he never decided to get into it. Uh, His arguments about how the most meaningful things in life or he asks you to think about what are the most meaningful things in your life, which for most people are pretty similar, right? Meaningful work, meaningful relationships, doing things that are interesting to you, having higher quality relationships with a few amounts of people. And if those are your core values, then you ask yourself, does using social media contribute or take away from those core values? And does it do so in a way that brings more advantages to them than it does harms? He presents a list of advantages and a list of harms, and his argument is, based on those things, it might make sense for you to not use social media. However, his argument is more nuanced than that, and he doesn't say social media is wrong for every person to use. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, so I'd followed that advice for a while because I wanted to be more distraction-free in college to be able to better do my work and to force myself through no other options to, with the people I wanted to stay in touch with, have my only option be phone calls and text messages and emails or whatever. Uh, Because there's something I think still is true that's much more intimate about interacting with people in that way because it shows, you know, I chose to communicate with you via this phone call or I chose to communicate you 
with you via this text message, whereas it's kind of a random thing. They, they post something, you happen to see it, you happen to comment on it. It doesn't show that purpose, that purposefulness in why you contact yeah. them. I think something that's interesting about that is like the way that people use social media is when they get comments and they get likes on their on their different pieces of content. It's more about like bolstering that piece of content than it is about the connection between you and that other person. So like if I I feel like if if I get a comment from you, let's say on an Instagram post, then I'm not thinking about you commenting. I'm thinking about how that the reflects outwardly. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I think that plays into the, the reason that those connections on social media don't feel as real. I mean, I think you could probably get it out of like the DM function of them. But um, I totally agree that, that calling and text messages seem and exist to be more personal. Exactly. So not using social media is a form of a constraint you can impose on yourself to if your only option to keep in touch with people is taking it into your own hands to do so, that makes a difference. Uh, anyway, so the reason I started reintegrating some social media is originally I wanted to join a Facebook group for this book I read and for this challenge I was doing. So I made an account again so I could be a part of those things. And I decided to keep it because uh, this is Facebook. There are a lot of people I've met through different experiences, and it's especially with international people, it's just logistically easier to be able to have one platform where you can reach out to all those people and try to keep track of contacting them in different ways. So I decided to keep it, and Facebook's never been something I've gotten sucked up sucked into, especially if you don't download the mobile apps, uh, especially if you trace like you know the history of these platforms. It wasn't until they went on mobile when Facebook first started its mobile app that its usage really became. Yeah, uh, and I have a Google Chrome plugin called Newsfeed Eradicator. That when you go on Facebook, you don't see the newsfeed; you just see your notifications. Which, if you're using it right, should be only the types of notifications you've chosen to receive, which should be basically only things that directly mention you. Otherwise, they're taking control of you and manipulating your thoughts, or direct messages or friend requests. So in that way, it's really just another form of a database for people. And if you want to. Mm-hmm look up a specific person and see what's going on with them, you can search them on there. But it's not letting the news to be dictate what uh, you're in control of. So deep work's very important. And that actually ties into something really interesting. That's a theme from another book I chose, if you don't mind me jumping ahead a little bit. Absolutely. Okay, Let's because go for it. You, uh, you have it on your list too, because I see your list in front of me as well, since we're on the same note. Anyway, 4-Hour Workweek, right, by Tim Ferriss. It's kind of an okay. obvious one. Everyone was expecting us to talk about that. But a big idea from that book is not about the entrepreneurship, but about the pro- from the productivity, uh, managing your time, managing yourself chapters. He talks about controlling your inputs. Uh, he talks about the low information diet, you know, choosing to consume less media for a lot of reasons. One, you don't need to consume it yourself in order to stay informed because the people that actually watch the news are oftentimes not actually informed at all. They only know the headlines and couldn't tell you any sort of level two detail about whatever's going on. They could just tell you what's, what it's called. They couldn't tell you the capital of the country that's being mentioned or just anything beyond the very 30-second soundbite of the story. So watching the news isn't even about learning. But let me try to make the connection because I'm getting off topic here. And like, yeah, okay, go for it, yeah. The connection with Facebook and not using your newsfeed is that it allows you to use Facebook in a way in which you're controlling what you see. When you... And your, when your day and your usage of media is, let me go on the YouTube homepage and see what videos are recommended for me. Let me go on Facebook and see whatever happens to be in front of me. Let me go on the news and watch whatever happens to be playing. You're not choosing your inputs. And that is seeding autonomy about what you're thinking about, what your emotional state is. And I think that's a terrible thing to do. That a lot of people, it's a problem a lot of people get sucked into. So deeper, you're being reactionary and not, and not taking action. You are like, being, you're being reactionary, exactly, because you're, You've lost control of what you think. So if the first thing you do in the morning is check your email or the first thing you do is check Twitter or the first thing you do is check Facebook or the first thing you do is watch the news, you're letting other people decide what the first thing you think about will be. If instead you chose, you know, to read like a devotional, not saying a religious devotional, maybe just something like the Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday where you just choose to expose yourself to something you know is good or you choose to read a passage of a book that you know is great, you're choosing the direction for your day. 
Uh, so if you go on Facebook and you don't have a newsfeed, you're not sucked into what's going on. You just go on Facebook because you want to look at someone's profile because you want to ask them a specific question. That's a completely different purpose. Yeah. And I can't say that I'm not guilty of I neither you know, waking can I. up I neither and looking can I. at Twitter and Instagram. Um, but I will say that that kind of plays into one of my overarching theories, um, like about life, I guess. And, and it's, it's like, Ten minutes know, in and talking about one, everything. <laughs> that's funny but it, it's quick and short but just the fact that one decision leads to all your other decisions and making one hard decision like getting up and reading that devotional makes the next good decision even easier and the next mm-hmm. even easier and the next even easier and um when you choose to do the wrong thing it makes the next decision that you make harder for it to be good you can make your decisions that work for you or decisions that work against you uh, so it's really powerful if you approach a lot of situations with how can I handle this in a way that will work for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think? A couple big lessons from the four hour work week since that's on your list. And I got a few more, but I've yeah, I mean, much. this book kind of redefined the way that I look at the world, honestly, uh, you know, that's two, two big statements to make in a row, but, um, but you know, my dad's an entrepreneur and I've seen him his whole life work in different businesses and and try and do different things. But I don't know that book like told me that it was possible to live a life outside of what people um, think is normal. What are the differences? The nine to five. Yeah. Yeah. What are the differences between what? Between normal and not normal. Or what do you define as normal and what about yeah. the work week is different than well, preferable? He defines this group that um, is called the new rich. And I think that he's <laughs> he's now sad that he that he chose the new rich as uh, the way to describe it. But it's just people that are that understand that the world can be manipulated um, mm-hmm. and that you know you can you can take risks and and be successful in the world without um without having to accept all the the societal norms like going to college buying your first house um living in one place your whole life like all these things that are good in theory just aren't completely necessary you know i agree with that i think one interesting thing to bring up there on four work what did i write down about it uh not about challenging assumptions but about about what's possible. Uh, I'm really losing where I was going with this. I think a good example of that, right, is many retirements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like many retirements, the idea of taking like a three to, to six week or six month vacation, like five or six times throughout your life where you use the money that you've saved to, to live off of it in some of these different countries when you are young enough to really enjoy it versus waiting until you're, um, you know, 75 to actually, to actually retire. And what are you going to do then? I think and, you're underselling his best arguments for the mini retirement. Uh, well, you're the one that's been on them, so you can go ahead and exactly. So the, the argument yeah. for the mini retirement is that people wait and save and prep and work their entire lives for some arbitrary goal, right? They say, I want to work for 50 years. So one day I can live in a cabin, like a small cabin in like the mountains. Uh, and there are two big issues with kind of deferring gratification on something that you've never even experienced for 50 years. What, first of all, people don't realize that that's probably, for most people whose retirement is something simpler than their current situation, they could probably already attain some version of it in the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second, because most people don't even explore the math of how what that would look like, like whether it's going in with a group of people to get access to it once a year or buying a smaller house and just renting it out all the time. You're not there and turning it into a business. I mean, those things are possible, but the second is that they never even try that the thing that they want to do. So they say that their goal is to save up forever so that one day they can, you know, just get on a sailboat and sail all day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then they've never spent more than like three consecutive days on a boat or something. Yeah. It's like, take, three consecutive days take a month to try the thing that you're working your whole life to do experiment with that like exactly. 
Yeah. Uh, have you the, have I ever told you the story about the um the like fisherman? Have and... you ever told me the story? I mean, the one that's in the book and probably five other books on this list. Yeah, I didn't know it was in the book. I didn't know guarantee it's, where I got it's in it the four-hour work week. The fisherman in Mexico and the uh -huh, business uh -huh. school. Yeah, exactly. You can tell it if you want to. The parable. I mean, the point is that um, the grass isn't always green on the other side, and that maybe it'd be good for you to just enjoy where you're at instead of uh, working your whole life to get to some greater goal. Yeah, I think that's a paradox, though, in the four-hour work week, right? About the grass is always greener. Because the four-hour work week, T Tim's idea of, first of all, if you like follow up on the author, he lived out his idea of liberation, which is like the end of the book. Like, okay, so now you've implemented a way to ma make a lot of money without having to consume a ton of time. Now you have all this free time and free money. So what are you going to do with it? Uh, his answer is like travel the world, go to somewhere new and interesting all the time. Uh, even though that's kind of not what he ended up doing. And most mm -hmm. people do that and enjoy it for like anywhere from three months to a year. And then they realize they're not building anything meaningful. They're just chasing highs. They're just chasing adrenaline, chasing interesting, chasing novelty, which wears off quickly. And they end up planting the root somewhere and deciding that the grass is greener where you water it kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Shout another... out to Nat Eliasson. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, it's one example of that. I mean, I've even kind of experienced that myself, though. Same yeah. as living in Thailand for three to four months, doing a new, visiting a new destination every weekend is awesome. But after a certain period of time, you want to start contributing to something. It's you're investing so much in relationships that you'll likely never continue. Uh, you're making new friends constantly, but none of them are, or very few of them will prosper into something more meaningful and you're leaving behind the opportunity to actually build a community and have more deeper, more fulfilling experiences and long, longer term benefits. I think a big paradigm shift from the book, this is a point I wanted to make a minute or two ago uh, about working nine to five and kind of being told what to do versus striking out on your own is the idea of acting on the world versus letting it act on you. And I think that's kind of a little quip to encapsulate yeah. what you're trying to say about how it made you rethink entrepreneurship as a possibility and kind of encouraging you to act on the world versus let it act on you. I think there are two other important things I had for this book. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one is challenging your basic assumptions. This is kind of contextualizing or putting into words what we kind of just described of what's possible for yourself and what your limitations are. Uh, this is one of the books, the first books that made me realize the limitations that everyone thinks that they have, right? Those are self-imposed. You kind of, whatever you tell yourself can't be done. You're the only one telling yourself that it can't be that done. It can't be done. I mean, other people might be telling you that too. Like headwinds in your life might be encouraging you to believe in things that limit yourself. But if but you you're just the take only some one that can actually do it to like, ask yourself, like what are some of my assumptions about the working world? Right. What are some of my assumptions about making money? Okay. Well, my assumption is the only way to make money is by having a job. If you call that into question, right, you say, is, I assume that the only way to make money is having a job. And you ask yourself, okay, is that true? Does that hold up? Uh, the answer is all of a sudden, no. You start considering alternate ways, right? And that's what the book does. But he does that with a couple of things. Uh, then the other point from that book is 80-20, right? That's the first time I was really exposed to 80-20. The Pareto principle. I feel like I see that everywhere now. Oh, it's one of those things you see everywhere. Uh, yeah. Our friend thought it was literally everywhere, and we had to tell him that <laughs> it's not literally everywhere. Some, some things are not distributed in that way. Kyle, do you, want you explain what it is, though, real quick? 80 uh, The 80-20 principle is basically that you get 20% of your role, or you get 80% of your results from 20% of your work, uh, and, and that holds true with most companies. Like, you get 80% of your revenue from 20% of your customers. So if you double down on the 20% of people that you're um, getting most of your benefit from, then it um, increases your effectiveness and mm -hmm. your bottom line at the end of the day. And that can be applied to, to many different things. Like in his book, The Far Our Body, he applies it to working out and how um, you know he lays out the 20% the of things that um, give you 80% of the results. And most of the time it's actually not 20% and 80%. It's usually like 5% and 95%. Mm -hmm. and that's why when we work out, 
we only do compounds for the most part. Um, well, before this quarantine. When the gyms were open, exactly. Yeah. So that's a little side note we'll get into. Hopefully when the gyms reopen, maybe we'll be qualified to make a strong list five by five episode. But compound exercises, you know, you can get 80% of the results of someone spending two hours in the gym just by doing five sets of five heavy back squats, five sets of five heavy bench press, five sets of five deadlift or whatever, uh, three times a week versus people going in two hours a day. Uh, that's a good discussion on the four-hour work week, I think. little intro Absolutely. teaser. Uh, what's your next book? Because I've kind of brought it up. Um, I guess I can go into Equity Happens because – What's um, that about? It kind of explores one of my interests. I'm very interested in real estate as an investment vehicle, specifically um, investing in like multifamily apartment units and um, different types of real estate. And actually, the people who wrote – Equity Happens are uh, Robert Helms and Russell Gray. They're the people that um, run the biggest, or maybe not the biggest at this point, but the longest running real estate podcast. They've been on since like 1994. Um, This book is about, uh, like the first half of it is a narrative story about two different people. Um, One is like a middle manager at a company and one is a janitor at that company. And they work together for 30 years side by side. And the man that is the middle manager always looks down on the other guy. But the whole time, the other guy is actually investing in real estate. And um, the janitor. Yeah, the janitor is. And at the end of 20 years, um, the company gets dissolved. And the middle manager has saved no money, doesn't know what he's going to do. He's got a car loan on his Mercedes and all this, all this stuff. And he goes over to the janitor's house and it turns out it's a huge custom mansion. And, um, you know, he's built this real estate portfolio over the course of his life. And then, um, after that narrative piece, they get into a technical analysis of how to, how to be the janitor. Right. And I think it's, it's actually really funny, um, in retrospect to look at it. Cause this is built, this was um, published, I think in 2006, right before the, um, okay. Right before the talk big about, crash. Talk about challenging assumptions, right? Housing prices always go up. Yeah, exactly. And that's what this book is about. Um, they, they say that you basically, like, you, you don't need to invest in cash flow because you can bet on appreciation. Um, <laughs> and, and they, yeah, so yeah. they, in most of their models, they um, either use 7% appreciation or 4% appreciation. Okay. Um, 4% is like, uberly conservative for them they're saying that that's almost impossible for it to be only four percent per year um which you know you can see isn't true or hasn't been true um and it wasn't true immediately after this book came out but it was my it was it was my first introduction into uh, the power of building wealth through real estate well not the first the podcast was the first and the book came second um but it taught me it taught me a lot um, and it, it drew up a passion in me that has been there for a long time about real estate, but, uh, channeled it more into the, uh, idea of actually being an investor and the idea that I can actually do it for myself. That's awesome, Kyle. So Thanks. is that your favorite real estate book or just the first one? Um, well, Art of the Deal? Uh, there's, yeah, <laughs> Art of the Deals is, that's different. I'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. Um, I think that you don't need to read very many real estate books. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's more of a field where, and I don't have that much experience, so mm-hmm. don't take this. Either um, of us even have real estate. As, yeah, yeah. As true. Yeah. But I think, um, if this was the only real estate book you ever read, you'd probably be fine. If you, if you did all the steps in this book, you probably would never have to read another real estate book. Okay. Um, but I like different blogs. I like the bigger mm-hmm. pockets, like forums. Uh, I prefer podcasts over books because usually it's different people that they bring in um, to talk about real estate investing and, and what they've done to be successful. There's a ton of stuff out there. Sam a ton Zell. Of information. Mm-hmm. Sam Zell's one of my, uh, I don't know, heroes, I guess you could say, just because of his track record and how well he's done with um, being the grave dancer, as they call him. It might just be time for him what's to dust nick- off his... What does that nickname mean? Um, the Grave Dancer. What does that mean? 
it means that he acts when other people are um, on the verge of bankruptcy, basically. Like he, he goes in and, and swoops up distressed properties in a, um, and that's what he did in the 80s. And that's why he's been so successful is when that savings and loan crisis happened in 1987, he had a ton of cash built up because he knew that something was coming. Okay. And he went out and purchased all these properties from sellers that, that couldn't hold on to their properties at, at a steep discount. Crazy discounts. Yeah, yeah crazy discounts. Um, yeah, he might, so be, uh, what, he might be dusting off his dancing shoes then. Indeed, indeed. Um, but yeah. All right. Well, uh, are we, have we gone far enough into the episode to bring up Nassim? <laughs> I don't know. I think, yeah, <laughs> it's probably. too heavy. Yeah, yeah, equity happens is not nearly like like Nassim. <laughs> and we went from fairly innocent introduction to real estate guy guy has a job versus guy who makes less money but is smarter with it uh-huh. uh, to books that you know Naval says are going to last for a century if not more. He not said that, a, he said a millennium. How long is that? A thousand years. A thousand years. Okay. Yeah, this book is like like eating a cracker. <laughs> and that book's like a salty challenge an entire yeah the saltine challenge we should do a saltine challenge episode where you and i try to eat six saltines in a minute on air let's do it let's okay. do it i have some unsalted saltines that might make it easier or harder uh unsalted saltines. that's all that the store had bro that's all the store had that's interesting so it's a it's a virus out there it's a crisis that's a, that was two weeks ago i don't know the saltines might have been restocked Speaking of okay. cri- speaking of crises and benefiting from disorder, there's a book called Anti Fragile, Kyle. Have you heard of it? I have heard of it. Have I you read Anti Fragile? I read a hundred pages of it, but at the same it's time, good. I was trying to read Outliers, and then I burned out, like I do with most books, and stopped reading it. Well, that's what Nassim Taleb would advise you to do. Actually, uh, this might be from Anti Fragile, or it could be from Fooled by Randomness. But one of the things that he talks about. Uh, that I actually also just read in How to Take Smart Notes by Sanke Aruns, I'm saying that so wrong, is that these very prolific thinkers and writers and readers have an approach to their work where they only read something when it interests them. And this is something I can really relate to. This is a little heuristic rule of thumb, life hack, you could call it, where I've noticed it myself. If I'm reading a book that I'm genuinely consumed by, it doesn't matter if it's 500 pages, I'll read it in like, two or three days uh, versus even like a 150 page book where if I'm just reading it to read it and I decide I'm not so interested but I want to finish it, it might take me like a month to draw that. Like Walden took me like almost a month. I, I came up with the idea that I wanted to read it and I decided I was going to finish it and be hard headed about it. And I did, but my retention for that versus, you know, a book like the end of jobs by Taylor Pearson, where I've read it twice and both times I've read it, I read it in probably 48 hours, even though it's 300 pages my retention for that's higher and I finished it faster. So that's a little heuristic that Nassim talks about in Anti-Fragile is if you're really interested in something, like read it. And if you're not, quit. Quitting books is totally fine. And Anti-Fragile stands as heck. And that might actually be an example of a book that I didn't love. I just, I liked it a lot, but like it was just too, it's too hard to fly through and read Yeah, it. I was going to say this book. It's hard. Yeah, this book is like, it's so dense that you can't really get into it enough to where you just like finish it in 48 hours. And if you did, I mean, in my opinion, you you wouldn't retain anything. No. Uh, The idea of anti-fragile, right. Is that you benefit from disorder, variability and randomness in unpredictable events are almost like, that's the only certainty, right. Is uncertainty and anti-fragile is a mindset or positioning strategy or way of life where you try to position yourself in all sorts of situations to actually benefit from that predictable variability disorder chaos. Uh, Most people think the opposite of fragile is robust, right? Because things that are fragile is glass. You drop it, it breaks. So the opposite of fragile is robust. Something that if something bad happens to it, it's resilient. It weathers to storm. It's very strong, but that's not the opposite. That's like the middle ground on a spectrum of fragility. The anti-fragile is something that 
something bad happens to it or something you perceive as bad or something not desirable per se actually makes things better off. Well, some, some fat tailed risk uh, happens to it and then it becomes better off. Right. That's like, exactly. Some... I mean, it's not, it's not possible really in most circumstances to be benefit from every set of circumstances. Uh-huh. Uh, so the way anti-fragile brings up investing, right. Is something it calls a barbell strategy, which is totally carried by asymmetric risk profiles where you put 90% of your investment in something that should almost with certainty with whatever certainty we have not lose value, whether that's cash, money, market, gold, things that the, the variability is extremely low. Uh, and that's another point in the book too, is that things with low variability can actually contain hidden risk or silent risk. Uh, mm. but that's a little complicated to get into. Anyway, you put the majority of your profile and think your portfolio in something that you is extremely conservative, extremely safe. You can make that determination for that is yourself, but some combination of cash and gold and guns and germs and steel and toilet paper. Uh, <laughs> but the other five to 10% is in extremely risky things. Uh, something that could go to zero. That's a real possibility, but it could also a thousand X. So whether that's putting it, you know, putting 2% of your portfolio in some, in like Ripple or IOTA, like some arbitrary cryptocurrency or in an early stage startup. Uh, and that has a known downside because at worst you lose your principal, but at best it turns into something huge. And you can use those gains to either reinvest in your risk investments or in funding, making the conservative part of your barbell bigger. And that's just I mean, that's just the very, very, very beginning of what this book get, gets into. So would you say that uh, one side of the barbell is, or 90% um, should be in things only that will, you know will hold their value or things that create income for you? Because you I mean, know, that the depends on your risk tolerance, right? A little bit. Okay. Yeah. And it also depends on what things that produce income. So I think real estate could yeah, I guess have, that's the obvious, could, obvious answer. Yeah, right? could play a role in uh, the conservative part of the portfolio, right? If all of it is real estate, then you're exposed to massive downside risk mm-hmm. because it's possible for real estate to lose 50% overnight. Real estate's not going to go to zero unless, you know, like a revolution happened or something uh, beyond the scope of what we're talking about in terms of normal things to expect, even though I guess the revolution would be a black swan event and it seems to level probably prepare for but that's not, that's not so relevant. So real combination of real estate, cash, things like that. I was just, the reason I brought that up is because I was listening to a podcast earlier about real estate and it was um, talking about the difference between speculation and, um, you know, investing. And he said mm-hmm. that speculation is where you risk your principal and uh, in, investing is where you your, cap your downside. Print, yeah, you cap your downside. Your principal is relatively safe. And you have some not asymmetric upside, right? Yeah, exactly. You want asymmetric upside, not asymmetric downside. Mm-hmm. Asymmetric downside is how you go bust. Me and Liz have been interested in asymmetries for a while. Ever oh, yeah. since, uh, you know, wow. way back when we were toddlers. Two months ago. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we've just decided to use the term more explicitly and more frequently, but I think we've been... I mean, I read Anti-Fragile in 2018 and been talking to you about it since like the first time we met. So I don't know. That is true. Don't be giving me only two months of credit on asymmetries. Uh, Nassim Taleb, former trader. Uh, Nassim Taleb deserves a podcast and then another podcast and then another podcast. Each one of his books deserves a series. Each chapter deserves a series. They're so dense. Uh, But he's what really makes him cool. He's very authentic. He has lost skin in the game, which is another one of his books. But he stands by and carries out and lives out every one of his ideas, at least most of them, obviously. Mm -hmm. And that gives him a lot more credibility, which is something I think is true of all the books we've brought up so far, right? Cal Newport still doesn't have social media, still probably hold away in a dark room with a little lamp over a desk, writing some computer code, solving some algorithm problems. Tim Ferriss more or less has had the same attitude towards the world. He said that he increased his passive income by 20%, like in one month, a month ago. 
Yeah, his headlines still read the same after like 10 years. Exactly. These guys are very true to what their message is, and that makes them very attractive as authors. Uh, Let's jump to the next book. Kyle, what you got? Alrighty. Let's talk about Shoe Dog a little bit. Have you read Shoe Dog? I have. So Shoe Dog is the story of Phil Knight, the uh, founder and I guess ex-CEO of Nike. Um, It's his autobiography going from when he's uh, 20 years old all the way through to the um, eventual IPO of Nike. Um, It's just like an incredibly well-written book. We discover in the story that he read a lot of classics when he was younger and and was a voracious reader. Um, But basically we follow as he um, has a project at Stanford Business School where he writes about um, creating a shoe company using imported goods from Japan. And then he gets on a plane, goes to Japan, like he did what everybody else would never do in that class. He actually went to Japan, followed his, his ideas and his passions, made it happen. And then, um, you know, there's miles of thing uh, of story that I had outlined for you about what happened. But what I got from it was just the relentlessness that he had to have in order to be successful in that, in that world. Like, is something as simple as shoes, um, but he was, you know, floating credit lines and sweating every day, and just like you could see the torment that it, that it put on him um, through his writing, and he still went for it. And and today, you know, we we look at him as just some eccentric billionaire, but being able to see inside of his mind from the ages of twenty to thirty-seven. Um, was really interesting for me. Yeah, that's pretty solid summary of the book. And I agree with your little, not little, just that takeaway at the end of it of how interesting it is to label him today as an eccentric billionaire and say, oh, he's some genius, he's some talent. But he was very average or very relatable as a 20-year-old. He got his undergrad in accounting, uh, became an accountant, was an accountant, had some side project idea from his MBA class, asked his dad for money so he could go travel the world, travel the world, decided he wanted to start, started out in a relatively small, limited inventory type thing and just figured things out as he went. And there is no, you don't read the book and think this is some exceptional genius. This is some exceptional mind. This is someone well beyond this person's capable of things I'm not capable of, right? You don't get that impression from him, which makes it a very empowering book. It's very much just, he's just bumbled through it. Okay, I had yeah. to figure this out, so I called this person, or I had to figure this out, so I thought about it, and this is what we did. Not, you know, I anticipated every problem. I anticipated everything that could possibly go wrong because I have this business magic ball, and I am Mr. Money. I mean. Yeah, and he's very open about the amount of luck that he, well, he reveals his luck. He doesn't say straight out it's luck, but, like, um, one of the most interesting things about that book to me was um, his pro- his partnership with this guy named, uh, I think it was Joe Johnson. It was a double J name. Um, but he just randomly runs into his, this guy that was his classmate at Stanford and, um, the guy needed a job and he hired him. And it turns out that this guy is like extremely, extremely meticulous. He, he collected uh, a customer list of from everybody that he ever sold shoes to and would correspond with them and, and send them discounts. And he just had like a computer in his brain basically. Um, and, and the company simply would not have become what it is without Joe Johnson um, being a part of it. And it all happened by chance. So, you know, it's just, it's really interesting to look in, in retrospect um, and, and deem it as lucky or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it, 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 it happened, you know, <laughs> and it could happen to you and it could happen to me. It's, yeah, it's just, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and that's another discussion we could have another time about luck versus opportunity and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, that's something that Nassim talks a lot, a, lot, a lot about as well in Fooled by Randomness. Yep, and optionality. And, I mean, each we're trying to cover some some big books with some short summaries, but we're just giving little teasers, and maybe we can – we're giving ourselves content ideas really for the future is all we're doing. That's uh, a fact. And giving people reading lists if they're interested in this kind of stuff. I think the next book, since on the theme of inspiring biographies, is Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. It's a classic. David Goggins – I mean, he's one of those dudes you can't even describe. He, so I haven't read it. Um, but I'm familiar I, with him, obviously. Yeah, I'm very familiar with him. Joe so Rogan, Boat Crew too. Go for it, Kyle. You have stuff to say. To say that he, um, you know, this guy, he like... Future podcast guest, obviously. He was like 250 pounds and decided that he was going to run 100 miles that weekend. This was in the 90s or something. So he went out... And he ran around a one mile loop a hundred times and his, his like ankles were so broken by the end of it that he just like casted them and just ran with bricks on his feet. This dude is the only, I think the only person to be a Navy SEAL and a, a paratrooper or a Green Beret or something like that. Point is this guy is harder than hard. Um, and I think that, you go ahead and take it over Lewis, okay. about the book. I think you mashed up every single one of those details, but that's okay. Uh, the San Diego one day you got right, which is uh, basically he was from, I mean, they, his biography, autobiography, uh, written, co-written by Adam Skolnick is the author. They do an audiobook. I have only listened to the audiobook, but I've listened to it twice all the way through. And I would actually recommend it because it's an experimental media where they do a half podcast, half audiobook where Adam Skolnick narrates the chapters and then him and David do, I don't know, five to 10 minute discussion of that chapter podcast style after every chapter, which is awesome. He goes through his entire life story from being a kid, getting beat by his father, uh, not going to school and doing very poorly in school, almost failing high school. uh, And then having to learn basically fourth grade to 11th grade and the matter of a couple of months, which is extremely interesting sidebar, the public education system, is so messed up that that's possible. Uh, I think most of K through 12 education could be done in a fraction of the time. And that's a massive waste of time. And David did it for the ASVAB, right? He did it for as well, again, for the ASVAB, uh, but he had to graduate high school. So this is just graduating high school. So he uh, cheated from like fourth grade to 11th grade and then managed to pull himself together in a couple months of ultra learning, uh, not a term he used, but and graduate high school, and then he wanted to go into the military, couldn't pass the military test. That's a whole other story, passing the ASVAB, uh, how he studied for that. And then he gets into it, starts getting into the Air Force, being like a paratrooper, pararescue man. Uh, that's a crazy story about how he does that. But for whatever reason, he either gets kicked out of that for medical reasons or honorable discharge because of medical and just goes and becomes a cockroach, cockroach sprayer at donut shops and these fast food restaurants and he gains a ton of weight, starts weighing 300 pounds. I mean, he's a power lifter. Uh, so he's like strong, but he's not in good shape. He's eating a whole pack of donuts every morning and like 25 eggs a day and candy and fat burger milkshakes, like every single day, steak and shake after work, middle of the night, totally messed up schedule. And he was coming home one night and he saw an advertisement for a Navy SEAL. So he's 300 pounds. So he decides, no, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. So he calls, as many recruiters as you can find. Someone says, everyone says no, because he doesn't fit the height and weight requirements. And one guy says, okay, you're, if you can lose a hundred pounds in three months, you'll, you'll meet the height and rating. He finds a way to do it and he becomes a Navy SEAL. And that's an incredible story about getting through hell week. And then actually as a Navy SEAL and the, the additional training, he's just an uncommon dude. And he talks about the mental toolkits he used to become who he is. He's very, Again, same thing as Phil Knight, where his entire purpose is not, look at me, I'm David Goggins, I'm so cool, I'm a god among men, I've done things no one else can do. His whole thing is, I'm like the least spectacular person ever. I was not smart at all, I was not athletic at all, I'm not gifted in any way. All that's interesting about me is that I've been a student of my mind for 10, 15 years. I've cataloged and created a couple, I mean, only like really 10 tricks for how to push yourself to do more. But I've gotten, I just doubled down on every one of those simple tricks and here's all the things I've done with it. It's- Do you give us a couple of those tricks? Sure, so one's the accountability mirror, another one's the cookie jar. The accountability mirror is basically putting sticky notes on your mirror that are your goals. 
this idea that every day you look at that mirror and ask yourself, like, and I think he talks to himself literally like in the mirror, David Goggins shouting at himself, like you're fat, stop being fat. Or like you're not fast enough, get faster or you're quitting too early. Stop quitting. Uh, but he puts his goals up on his whiteboard on his sticky notes and is forced to confront them every day and ask himself if he's making progress towards them. So that's really powerful. The cookie jar is more of an in the moment type thing where he's on a long run and he's out of gas, but he digs into his cookie jar, which is this mental bank of motivational experiences. He's aggregated of, okay, why would you quit now? Because think about how badass you were five years ago at this race. Like you made it through hell week and you're going to quit five miles into this steep hill climb in Hawaii. Like, no, of course not. And it's how he accesses what he calls a sympathetic nervous system to pull up extra adrenaline in these different experiences. So those are just a couple, uh, talks about the dungeon, how he kind of like psychs himself out and like, and retreats into this world of loud music and noise cancellation when he's doing this pull-up challenge. I think something really valuable from this book too, is how he breaks things down to component pieces. So he talks about, you know, trying to get the world pull-up record. I mean, you have to read this book to you make, it sounds like fiction with all the different things he overcomes and (laughs) all the different challenges he puts in front of himself and completes. I mean, he did, there was like a year where he did 50 ultra races uh, or an ultra races greater than a marathon. He did like 50 in a year something just absurd, like the year is 2006, 2007. But for the pull-up record, he's like, okay, what is it? Okay. Like 4,000 pull-ups in a day. I can do that. That's just six every minute on the minute for 17 hours. And just taking that same mindset of, okay, here's an impossible task but what does it actually look like in the smallest possible piece? And all of a sudden it sounds manageable. There's a lot of use. It's not even one pull up a second. Exactly. Like <laughs> I can do six, six pull ups a minute. Sounds easy. I mean, extending it out for uh, 17 hours <laughs> is a little different. Recently um, he called out, do you know who Cameron Haynes is? I don't. He's a, he's a friend of, of David Goggins and of Joe Rogan. Um, this will be short. He uh, runs a marathon a day. He has a son named Truett. Um, and David Goggins called him out and told him to beat him at the pull-up challenge. So Truett is currently training to try and beat um, Well, David Goggins doesn't have the David pull-up Goggins. record anymore anyway. Oh, really? Yeah. He's not built for the pull-up record. And that's what's so interesting is he's not – his natural build didn't lend himself to be skilled at any of these things. If anything, his natural build was probably to be a powerlifter. I mean, he's a big dude, big bones kind of dude, uh, but not built to be a runner, not built to be a pull-up guy. Like you should kind of want to be a stringy guy with shorter arms because that makes pull-ups easier. Whereas he's like a big dude, lots of weight carrying around, trying to put all that pressure on your hands. Uh, but that's David Goggins. He's one of the most motivational, incredible reads I've ever I've ever read. That I'd recommend that, and not in terms of I mean, definitely in terms of self-help, but in terms of just interesting and entertaining and awesome. So that's, that's a book. And you listen to the audio book, right? Twice. Yeah. <laughs> Full length within like two months of the first time I listened to it again. Maybe listen to it again. It's, it's that good. I'll listen to it a third time. Let's get David on the show. Our, our good Let's pal. do it. Dude, that would the problem be is a he would like, wake up call for me. Yeah. The problem with David Goggins is if you let him into your life and that's the problem with Tim Ferriss too. These people make you question. They force you to be better because they expose you to how much better you could be. And it kind of pisses you off that you're not doing what they do. Like David Goggins, he would be like, okay, I want to, before I get on your podcast, I need to run a marathon with you. Be like, what do you mean? I'm not in shape at all. He's like, okay, well you have 12 hours to prepare or yeah. be like, that's fine. But I need to see you run through this brick wall without any equipment first. I'm like, what do you mean run through the brick wall? And he'd be like, once I see you break through this wall with just your body, that's when I'll talk to you. So that's awesome. Right. Uh, I mean, I've just made off that brick wall thing, but he's it's also not, true. He's not going to let you go take the easy way out on anything, which is exhausting. He'd be like, okay, but let's sit in the sauna for 12 hours. First, first one to the first one to pass out loses. So that's pretty cool. What you got Kyle? I think, that, I think that's an awesome um, story and awesome guy, Lewis. Um, I think that the next one that I'll talk about is zero to one. And I'll be honest, I read, I read this a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not going to remember everything, 
But the lesson that I took away from it is the power of a monopoly and the fact that monopolies are still real. Um, one of the points he makes is that like Google, Facebook, um, Amazon, they're all monopolies. Um, Google is a, is a monopoly on search, right? Mm -hmm. But they, they mask that by saying that they're a technology company. Yeah. Um, so Google, like 99 per, or 95% of the revenue comes from search. Ads. Just that one simple, yeah, AdWords, like search. Um, mm -hmm. And the whole book is about how if you can control, if you either create something new or you reiterate. If you reiterate, it has to be at least an order of magnitude better than the last version of it okay. um, in order for you to have a monopoly. Um, and a monopoly is the idea, it is having control of a market, but it's also, you get there by creating something new. Um, so that's where the title comes into play. Um, he says that most companies go from or from from one to N, meaning they're iterating on some other business model, some other design, um, in a in a not very meaningful way, but a way that will produce profits. So, um, what he wants to see and what he encourages is for people to go from zero to one, where you are inventing a market like uber did or airbnb or you know it's the thing uber and airbnb are those zero to one or are those iterating on something in an order of magnitude new way because you could say yeah. i don't know well zero to one is companies that reiterate to an order of magnitude okay um but it's a, it's more about like creating the market and that's sure. what airbnb did they opened up um a marketplace between homeowners and people that want to, or well, I guess VRBO. I don't know. I, you know, you get what I'm saying though. Yeah. Revolutionary like companies that almost sound stupid when they were first pitched and people wouldn't invest because Except they Except Sam. Tim invested it. in all of them somehow. Well, yeah, that's because he is a beast and lives by the four hour work week. Exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's all. That's pretty much all I've got about zero to one. Peter Thiel's a really, really interesting guy. Nassim um, um, actually endorses this book for for entrepreneurs. I think I should reread it after talking about it. Um, but yeah. yeah, could reread all these books on this list except Deep Work. I don't need to reread that. I've read it four times straight through. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, I don't really have a choice for my last book here. I kind of listed a couple. Uh, one good one I'll talk about and just choose to make it my fifth and then the rest I'll just le read as honorable mentions at the end is Hybrid of Atomic Habits and Power of Habit. Their Atomic Habits is, in summary, an updated version of Power of Habit. It's going into making you self-aware of the importance of habits and how much power they actually have over your life. Uh, you know, the unconscious behaviors that you go into in a routine automatic way that control so much more of your behavior in your daily life than you think until you're made aware of it. And then it's something that you're constantly aware of. What are my basic habits? People think of habits as just things you do on a regular basis. But if you think about atomic habits, and I mean, there's so much to unpack with all these ideas that it's hard to encapsulate them into brief book summaries. But if you think about I guess applying it from a improving your life point of view, habits are the most easy way to make lasting change with the least amount of effort because you make some tiny habit change where you say, okay, so I want to get more writing done, right? What's my biggest impediment to doing that? Uh, whether it's focus or it's motivation or it's you're just disorganized and you kind of unpack and analyze how you go through your own day and how you go through in your own life and what types of things draw you in what types of directions. And if you understand those at a deeper level, it makes you more aware of what your habits are. And the best way to change those is by starting, or, I mean, so I had a rough time <laughs> getting to the, getting to the point from this, from these books. Uh, they're the books do a better job of structuring the content in they really they do here's what here's what habits are yeah they do a better job than i did now if you can believe oh, okay. that uh what are habits 
how do you change a habit? How do you introduce a new habit? That's each one of those is its own point of conversation. And I was trying to explain them all in one sentence, which is what got really difficult about that. Anyway, the books are really useful for learning what habits are, which then empowers you to be able to change existing habits or introduce new habits. And that's Uh, a very powerful thing to do. One big takeaway for me from the power of habit, which again, I read your copy. Um, I think that I never read that copy though. I read it on Kindle and then I just bought it to have it. So it was clean. Oh, well, perfect. Your copy, but not one that you read, um, was the idea of keystone habits Mm. and how, um, when you make a, a grand gesture or a big change, like, oh man, I'm now I'm having a hard time knowing what a, a keystone habit, basically it's like, um, we'll get there. It's like deciding that you, no, I'm, I'm wrong. You're going to have to help me out. Okay. I mean, I didn't bring up Keystone Habits, so I can't say I'm overly familiar yeah. with what the specific <laughs> term is. I guess you're going to have to check out the book. Uh, I guess we've just optimized our habits so beautifully that we don't even need to remember the content anymore. Anyway. It's like making a big change in order to uh, facilitate the, um, it's like when you move to a new city and you are able to build your habits off of, of of that like that would be a keystone moment where you can build rebuild your habits okay like this moment like the um the quarantine is uh, coming out of the quarantine will be a keystone moment for a lot of people where you get to reinvent yourself and your habits i think yeah um maybe that's wrong maybe that's right we'll see uh afterward we're gonna be uh gentle with using the label Keystone Habits there, but the concept you described is still interesting and useful, regardless of whether or not it's from that book or called that. Uh Uh, The point is these books are very reliable sources of motivations for a very reliable source of motivation for coming up with a ton of ways to do things better and live your life better, which makes them worth reading. Absolutely. Those are all my five books, Kyle. I think you got one left. I think I have one left um or a different one yeah we can do that one Uh, the autobiography of benjamin franklin um is one that i have read most of recently um and it it walks through um his time as a kid and then going to philadelphia crazy story about him like almost dying but because he was he was so curious he'd read a book about fevers so he knew that if he drank enough cold water that he'd be fine um meanwhile all, like most of the other people on that ship got like chronically or, i don't really remember the rest of that it got really sick um what drew me to it was just the the character of ben franklin um in retrospect is like unbelievable i mean this guy invented invented bifocals he um pretty much created America. He's the only <laughs> created person that, bifocals first, America second. <laughs> he's the only person that signed every, uh, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Treaty of Versailles, and the Treaty of, um, I guess it was London. There's another treaty that made us a... Um, Sounds like he just likes taking credit state. for things. Yeah. But also, um, we see all of his big accomplishments and this book did a was very interesting because it broke down the way that he thinks about things. It was, it was his writing, but like I one example so in an autobiography. Of that is um, his emphasis on virtue. Um, and he wanted to be a very good person. So what he did was he created like a table with eight different, 13, or, or 13 different um, characteristics of someone with virtue. And then each week he would track one of those, um, one of those different characteristics. So like honesty, let's say mm-hmm. on days that he was, or he, he lacked in honesty, he would put an X um, on it and he would cycle through all of these different 13 virtues until he saw himself improving. Um, and, you know, there's no way that's a bad thing, right? And I think that it's, it's certainly interesting for us to uh, see his accomplishments and then to also see this other layer beneath it where he, he 
put so much emphasis and focus on actually being a better person. I think that's a really interesting contrast to uh, some of these other people. I think that we've talked about, right? Because you have these two far and different spectrums of successful people. You have the people like Phil Knight that just kind of seem like they blustered into mega success. And you sound like Ben Franklin, who it was not just, I mean, it's hard to say he what would have happened one way or the other, but he's like the, the least spontaneous, right? He's extremely calculated and extremely intentional about this is how I shall approach my life in order to get the things I want out of it. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to keep a notebook of my virtues and make sure I'm virtuous. Whereas some of these other people are just, okay, I'm just going to do the next action. I'm just going to do the next thing. I'm just going to figure out the next thing. Yeah. Uh, which strategy do you think is more anti-fragile or is there a right answer to that? Between Phil Knight and Ben Franklin? Yeah, because they kind of represent two extremes Man, of like yeah. the self-obsessive manic uh, Ben Franklin and the Phil Knight who just kind of show up to work, figure out today's set of problems, go home, figure out tomorrow. Well, I think that Nassim would probably say Phil Knight, right? I don't know. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I don't know either. Um, I didn't read, I haven't read Anti-Fragile in, in, in its entirety, so I feel like the least qualified one here to make that There call. are only two of us here. Um, but Phil Knight is the quintessential entrepreneur. Um, is there such thing as the quintessential entrepreneur? We're not friends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, maybe we've digressed too much. I don't know. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to think about these, these make some connections, make some connections, think of interesting I mean, I'm not just making these up for the sake of making them. Yeah, up. no, I think I think they're both very anti-fragile. Uh, ben Franklin could have benefited from anything because he's just so like he'd spin anything, any adversity, as something in his own favor. Exactly. Well, and I think he did. I mean, we watched him do that yeah. through that that book. Right? I think something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very interesting about Ben Franklin is. I mean, in his private, right, in his private life, his approach was meticulous. But the work ethic and kind of Benjamin Franklin way to be successful strategies he pronounced and uh, vocalized and spread were honest labor, just be honest and work hard. Like he was very, he espoused a very simple doctrine, be humble, do good work, be a tradesman, be a craftsman have high quality goods, go to work, work hard. Like he wasn't basically saying in a kind of Tim Ferriss way, you need to be the self-obsessive yeah. uh, guy. He wasn't reinventing the wheel. Yeah. But I'm saying he kind of preached somewhat slightly different than he practiced. Like he didn't say everyone should do this virtue practice for themselves, but I don't know. Yeah. He, he's a complicated figure and it's, that's why there's so much to talk about with him. Uh, for sure. I, th- I think I'm going to list out quickly a rapid fire Lewis's honorable mentions mm-hmm. and you can do the same and we can wrap this up. My honorable mentions unscripted by MJ DeMarco. It's another book about entrepreneurship. And I figured if I talked about it, I would have been very narrow in the scope of what I talked about. He is another evangelist for the possibilities of entrepreneurship brings up and conceptualizes in really interesting ways. The importance of divorcing your time for money and the leverage entrepreneurship gives you uh, principles by Ray Dalio, Ray Dalio. Uh, one of the most interesting takeaways from that book is using hard times as a cue for learning, being very introspective and cataloging all of your major life experiences to make sure that you know how to respond to situations and you can recognize patterns in your own history, but also in world history and, uh, catalog those principles, the underlying truths that tend to govern those situations. So you can be aware of them and use them to your advantage. The meditations of Marcus Aurelius, that's a classic. I didn't really feel as qualified to talk about it because I mean, I've read it, but you need that book takes some chewing. You really got to chew and digest that book too. I mean, Ryan holiday, an author, he claims to have read it over a hundred times and he still acts like things in there are new and interesting to him. Uh, it's just a great book to serve as a devotional. Like we talked about where you read a little bit of it every day of just some ancient wisdom. That's perfectly applicable today. Same for letters of a stoic letters from a stoic by Seneca, the younger, pretty sure. Stoic text, Roman philosophers, great stuff. Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. 
Uh, I like that book because it's very important. Uh, one, his playful experimental spirit towards learning, but also his emphasis on what it means to really understand something and being a higher quality learner. The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand, key takeaway from that book. All real measurements are internal. It's a story of Howard Rourke and how he's the only person that determines whether or not his work is valuable or not. And I think that's very interesting. Finally, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. Also a fantastic book written in like, I'm going to say the 80s about the consequences of the rise in television culture and the flaws in media consumption. And that book's a great partner read for the information diet type discussion from the four hour work week. So that's my bonus list. Or just look at my good reads. Bonus list will be much shorter. Um, first one is the Leonardo da Vinci biography by um, Walter Isaacson. Um, it's just really fascinating to see that level of curiosity um, in any human. And it was really interesting to learn um, that he only published like one thing in his whole life. And it, was, it wasn't even his thing. It was his friend's math book. Um, and there are a lot of instances. Yeah, we talked about that in a, in a past podcast with Lisa McKinney. Um, but, you know, I, I just really that challenging assumptions, the thing like, you know, we've all heard of Leonardo da Vinci, but it turns out he's way different than I would have ever expected. Um, and then one that I have right here that's speaking to me is To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. I know that most everybody reads it in, in high school and there's a bunch of debates about it. Um, but I'm from Alabama and I, I pass where she lived probably like once a year. Um, and To Kill a Mockingbird to me is about not judging, um, you know, books by, by their covers or people by um, stories and giving people the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, Boo Radley, they think mm -hmm. that he's a terrible person. And in the end, he's the one that saves them. Um, but also there's, there's a whole world of other things about that book. It's so popular. That book is insanely popular. And I don't really understand how. Um, but anyways, that'll be my short bonus list there. Okay. Uh, let's quickly recap the titles we talked about. Uh, I'll do my list, you'll do yours. And then we'll wrap things up. I listed Deep Work by Cal Newport. Great productivity book, Four Hour Work Week by Timothy Ferris. Great productivity, entrepreneurship, lifestyle design book, Anti Fragile. I'm going to call that philosophy, economics. Uh, it's a book that makes you think. Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins, autobiography slash biography about a Navy SEAL, The Atomic Habits or The Power of Habit, The Atomic Habits being by James Clear, Power of Habit being by Charles Duhigg, books about, believe it or not, habits, and the honorable mentions I just said, not worth repeating. I mentioned Equity Happens by Robert Helms and Russell Gray. Also, the um, Real Estate Guys radio show is where you can find them. I talked about um, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. And I talked about Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please leave a rating on iTunes or a review. Leave a comment if you have feedback. If you like this kind of content, if you prefer more interviews, if there's something you'd like us to go in greater detail on, we'd be happy to do it. Thank you for listening. Uh, please subscribe. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you.